Isaiah 9, verses 6 through 7. We'll pray and we'll hear what the Lord has to say. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you today desiring to hear from you, desiring your spirit to speak to your church. Lord, desiring your spirit to speak to our hearts. And God, what we desire to receive today is not just words, but we want to receive you. We want to receive who you are. We want to receive Christ the Lord, not just into a building, but into our lives, into our hearts, into our relationships. Lord, be the center of all that we are. Lord, would you speak to us as we each have need. Lord, as we each need counsel, as we need wisdom, as we need peace. God, would you impart the peace that you bring in your presence to us today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, the word Advent, which is the word we use to describe the season leading up to Christmas, the word Advent just means arrival. And so it's the time every year when Christians across the world and throughout the history of the church remember the arrival of Jesus when God came into the world as a helpless baby in a manger. And it's also the time every year when restaurants and shops uh, just completely forget that they're not churches and start playing Christian worship music on the radio. Um, I remember I was one time at a, at a Starbucks and on the speakers uh, came the song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Now, when people listen to music, some people, they pay attention to the lyrics. Some people pay attention to the melody. Some people are more uh, focused on the rhythm, on the beat. I am a words person, and this is why I believe we should all be words people. Listen to these lyrics. Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Praise the Lord. Playing in a Starbucks in West Hollywood. I wanted to like stand up and shout like, are you listening? Listen to these words. But it seems every year during Advent, it's less and less about the arrival of Jesus. And it's more and more about the arrival of winter. And, and, and Santa Claus, and it's more and more about 
giving our hearts to someone special. You know that's the worst Christmas song of all time, right? The, the last year I gave you my heart, but the very next day you gave it away. This year, to save me from tears, I'm going to do the exact same thing again. This is why the song won't go away. Dating advice for you all. Don't give your hearts to someone maybe you've known for less than a year and then do it again the next year. It's awful. It's more about this sentimentality and, 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 and what we are giving, what we are able to contribute rather than the Son of God that's been given to us, what, what Christ has, has done for us, what our Father in heaven has given for us. And you feel this. We feel this, right? It can be tempting to get frustrated in this season with the culture around us. It feels often like our high holy day is being hijacked. But here's the truth. The real problem is not only that the world no longer celebrates Jesus at Christmas time, it's that the world no longer understands Jesus. They no longer understand. And so when we talk about the birth of Jesus, it's like talking to a grown adult about Santa Claus. It, it, it might be fun for one month out of the year, but every other day, does it really matter? It's entirely irrelevant, and it can be frustrating. And yet, Christmas provides us with an incredible opportunity. There's no other time of year when so many people are so open to the story of Jesus. No other time of year when people are so open to considering the question posed by the hymn, what child is this? And then what will we tell them if they ask? Do we still understand Christmas? Do we, as, as the body of Christ, do we understand who Jesus is and what he has done? And so what I hope for us to see in our text is four simple truths about the identity of the child in the manger. These truths of Jesus, if, if, if rightly understood, if we want the world to understand these truths, then they must first sink deep down into our hearts and transform our lives, not only during Advent, but every single day we can live the reality of the arrival of the Son of God into our world and into our lives. Our passage in Isaiah 9 is this, is this beautiful poem, but it's not just poetry. It's, it's rooted in a historical context. See, in Isaiah chapter 7, God promised the king of Judah that his enemies would be cut off. And this was the sign that it would be God's doing. Isaiah 7.14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And this happens as God foretold. Uh, Isaiah's own wife uh, gives birth to a son in Isaiah chapter 8, and Judah's enemies were stopped in their tracks in that season. But the child uh, was lacking something. The, 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 the prophecy wasn't completely fulfilled because this child did not embody the presence of God. He was not Emmanuel, God with us. And so the people understood this promise to be layered. Right? In a very real sense, the promise was fulfilled. A child was born and Israel's enemies 
were cut off, but they were still waiting for the child who would usher in this kingdom of peace that they were longing for. And so Isaiah 9 picks up on the prophecy of this promised child and tells us what the child will be like. Though God's people would continue to have enemies, this child that is born, the son that is given, is wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace. And now the New Testament picks this up and makes it clear that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of these things. And so this is what we remember during Christmas, that in the baby Jesus, we have the arrival of God himself to the world. And in Christ, we see that he is a wonderful counselor. And this is good news. That Jesus is wonderful counselor, is good news. Which of us has never been in need of counsel? And, and how many of us in times in our lives when we've been in need of counsel have received bad counsel? And how often are we in need of a wonderful counselor? Life is confusing. Times are tough. We need wise counsel. Someone who will, will be with us, who will, who will hear our plight, who will listen to our stories and give us direction. And so as wonderful counselor, Jesus, first and foremost, is with us. Jesus is, is with us. He's present. How weird would it be if I, I sat across the table from my wife one day knowing that she has had a long and, and, and difficult day and that she needs comfort and, and counsel and she shares her story and, and I wrote down on, on a piece of paper with a pen, they're there. It's, it's not so bad. At least God's not you know, asking you to, to be crucified on a cross. You can, you can do it. And then, I, and then I put it in an envelope, sealed it and stamped it and then mailed it to her. It had come to her three days later and was never present and, and never, never with her. It would be ridiculous. And so oftentimes when we come to God, we, we talk to him as though we're writing a letter to a friend far away. We just speak these words into the air and, and, and hope that, that someday they, they reach his ears. But God is, is with us. And so prayer is talking to a God who is with us. He's present. We believe that he is with his people. And so when you're hurting, when you're frustrated, when you're confused, when you can't make sense of the world, when you live through 2020 and 2021, and who knows what 2022 is going to bring when you experience heartache and heartbreak and relational brokenness and difficulty and sorrow and disease and death and suffering, all of these things, when you, when you don't have anyone else you can possibly turn to, when you feel misunderstood by everyone else in your life, Jesus is with you. He's God with us through whatever we're facing, even when we're facing the mountains of our own sin. Those moments when we're so aware of our brokenness that if anyone else were there with us, it would be unbearable. But Jesus is with us in those moments. He never leaves us, never abandons us, never turns his back to us, and he never shames us. We can be honest and look at our brokenness. And Jesus is right there with us, not saying, shame on you. You should have known better. He looks at it and says, yeah, 
That's, that's what that is. Now let's deal with it together. I died for that. I am with you regardless of what you've done, regardless of what has been done to you. I am with you. He's promised to be with you if your faith is in Christ. So as wonderful counselor, Jesus is with his people, but also Jesus understands you. He's not just with you, he understands you. We all know what it's like to speak to someone who doesn't listen. Or, or maybe they, they listen, but they're not interested. Or they're interested, but they don't understand. They can't, they can't relate to you. And you pour your heart out to them. And you desperately need someone to just be with you in it, but they don't understand. They can't relate. Jesus doesn't just hear you. He doesn't just listen to you. Jesus understands you. Jesus gets it. He knows exactly where you are. He's with you in it. He's experienced our humanity. He has suffered weakness and hunger and sorrow and poverty. He doesn't just know about us. He doesn't just know about you. He knows you. He is with you and he understands you. There's lots of things that we can know about just by studying them from a distance or learning about them in a book. A marine biologist can know a lot about a dolphin and their social interactions with one another. But a marine biologist will never know what it's like to be a dolphin because they've never been a dolphin. Jesus doesn't just know about you because he's studying you from a distance. He is with you. He knows you. And he has taken on our humanity onto himself. He knows what it's like to live and suffer in a broken world. He knows you. He made you. He, he, didn't, he made you on purpose. I remember there was a season in, in life not too long ago where I had to be reminded that God didn't just make me generically human. He didn't just make you generically human. He made you on purpose, carefully, intimately, intricately, made you with your gifts, made you with your passions, made you in your families, made you in your cities, made you in your, your relationships, in a context, made you on purpose and placed you. He knows you, not just about you. He knows you and he's never ashamed of you. He made you on purpose. And he understands you. As wonderful counselor, Jesus is with us. He understands us. But also his instruction is wise. That's what a counselor is. A counselor is someone who brings wisdom, who brings direction, who brings counsel into our lives. Wisdom is more than being smart. Wisdom is more than knowing lots of things. I remember early on in my Christian faith praying, God, would you give me knowledge of your word? And then years later, I realized, man, I really wish I would have prayed for wisdom. Wisdom and knowledge, not the same thing. Wisdom is more than having good ideas. It's more than being smart. In scripture, wisdom is applied not only to our intellect, but also to our skills. So a musician can play with wisdom. 
with skill. An artist can create with wisdom. A, a, a construction worker can, can build with wisdom, with skill. And so wisdom is skillful living. Wisdom is living well. You ever meet those people who, who just, man, they just know what to do in the craziest situations, things we've never encountered before. And, and you see other people encountering the same thing and you watch them live and you go, oh my goodness, that's how you do that. That's wisdom. Wisdom is skillful living. So I'm a big fan of the Olympics. Okay, and, and so I'm just geeking out that I get both the summer and the winter Olympics within the same 365-day uh, year period. So the Winter Olympics, right around the corner, people. I've been a huge Olympics fan my whole life. One of my favorite Winter Olympic events is figure skating. The reason I love figure skating is because I have tried to ice skate. No explanation necessary. I look nothing like them on the ice. They make it look so easy, so effortless. See, this is the understanding of biblical wisdom. It's it's taking the complexities of life, taking the difficulty in life, and somehow making it look easy by the way people live. And so sometimes in life, when we lack wisdom, we go through life looking like a, a, a person who's never put ice skates on before. But Jesus knows how to live skillfully, and he's with us on the ice, so to speak. He's with us in life. What we often want from Jesus when we, when we ask for Jesus' wisdom, when we ask for his counsel, what we often want is for him to give us the secret. What's the silver bullet? What's the, what's the secret to understanding this so that I can skate through life easily? But instead, he's like a coach. He's, he's training us over time. We're, we're watching him. We're, we're listening to his teaching. We're encountering him in the gospel. We're seeing the way that he lives and, and embodying the way that he lives over time. And as we listen to his instruction and his counsel, we'll not necessarily avoid the pain in the world, but we will be equipped to navigate life skillfully, to navigate life with wisdom, to navigate life as he did, to live our lives in a way that brings glory to him. And so Jesus is a wonderful counselor, church. He's with us. He understands us. And we can trust the plan that he has for us, not only because he made us on purpose, but because he has a a, a plan for you specifically to purposely fulfill in his grand plan of, of, of ushering in his kingdom of peace. And so this should bring us comfort and courage because he's he's not only a wonderful counselor, but he is, as the text says, he's mighty God. He's wonderful counselor, mighty God. This is the heart of the Christmas story, isn't it? That that God himself, the eternally existent son of God, took on humanity and was born into a broken and dark world. This is the doctrine of the incarnation. Incarnation is just a big theological term. Uh, But if if you break the word down, there's a word in there we're all familiar with, carne, carne asada. So the incarnation is the doctrine of God 
in meat, in, in flesh, incarnation. You get it. The man, Jesus of Nazareth, is mighty God. And as such, not only are his plans wise, but he is able to accomplish all that he desires. For all of creation, for every individual, for you, his desires for you are not only wise, but he is able to bring them about. His plan for you will not be thwarted. Not, only, not, not even you can interfere. He is able to accomplish all that he desires. No opposition against him will be successful. And this is good news because his desire for you is your salvation. His, his dream for you, his goal for you, his ultimate purpose for you is your salvation to be reconciled to him. We go through life often wondering, God, what is your will for my life? And scripture says that, that his will for us is our sanctification, our, our being made holy. Sanctification is this, is, this, is this word that means salvation coming to us in the present tense. We often think of salvation as, no, I was saved back then when I believed that salvation in the past tense. We were saved from the penalty of sin. But sanctification is salvation in the present tense, that we are being saved from the power of sin, that sin is losing its grip on us, that sin is fading away in our lives as Christ is magnified, as, as Christ increases in our lives, sin and, and the works of the flesh decrease in our lives. This is sanctification, and this is God's desire for you to save you, not only to save you from the penalty of sin, not only to save you from the power of sin, but one day, someday in the future, when he calls you home or when he returns, he will save you from the presence of sin. Completely, utterly sin eliminated from your life and from the world. This is glory. Jesus desires our salvation, and as mighty God, he is able to save his people from their sins. So one of the reasons I think culture um, misunderstands this concept of God in Christ, especially around Christmas time, is because people are comfortable celebrating a baby in a manger. A, a baby is not threatening. And so our culture can rally behind even some of these aspects of the, the Christmas story, even if they don't truly believe themselves, because it's a sweet story about a baby that came on a silent night peacefully in a manger. This is not threatening. And yet they disconnect the God of the universe from this baby in a manger, and so they, 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 they might look at the Christmas story, look at a nativity scene. Oh, how sweet. It's this family together, just making do with what they have. How beautiful. But they may still view God as being this tyrant with a bunch of rules that we need to follow or else he'll smite us. We like baby Jesus. We don't like revelation Jesus. But this is wrong thinking. You see, one of the, one of the beautiful truths about God is that God is never changing. God, God never changes. 
He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? And so did you know that nothing changed about the character of God at the incarnation? Nothing changed about God's character at the incarnation. Rather, the incarnation reveals something that has always been true about God's character. The incarnation reveals something that the world hadn't experienced in God yet, but God didn't change. It's always been true of God's character that he identifies with his people. God has always identified with his people. He made us in his image so that we would uh, reflect him and relate to him and, and, and show what he is like to the world. And he was so committed to that image in us that he became one of us in order to restore that image of God in us and to restore us to himself. God has always related with his people. And in the incarnation, we see that in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a miraculous way. The God who gave the law is the same God who was born in a manger to fulfill the law on our behalf. It's the same God. His law isn't given so that he can punish people for breaking it. He gives the law so that we can see that we're in need of him, so that we'll receive him when he comes to save us from our sins. It's the same God, the child in the manger and the God of the universe, our mighty God. He is able to save us because he is mighty God. And third, we see in our text that he is everlasting father. Now, this is not a statement on the Trinity, right? Father, Son, and Spirit. One God, three persons. This is not a statement. This is not confusing God the Son with God the Father. In fact, Isaiah did not have a fully worked out Trinitarian theology in his mind. There are, uh, there are elements of God's complex identity in the Old Testament, but they would be more fully understood and, and worked out by the New Testament authors. Isaiah is not making a statement about the persons of the Trinity. He's talking about the kingly identity of this promised child. Because a king is a kind of father. A king was, would be referred to as uh, the father of a nation. And so like a father, a king's role is to protect and provide for his people. And so the, the people of a nation could be referred to as the children of the king. And so this statement, everlasting father, is, a, is, is not... Uh, confusing the identity of Jesus with God the Father. It's saying that this promised child, though he, he would only be a child, yet he is an everlasting king. And so this promised child is an everlasting king. And so the birth of Jesus is not the story of a new king coming into the world. Though he is a child, he is the everlasting king. He always has been. He always will be. And so if we want to encounter the God of the universe, if we want to encounter the creator, God Almighty, we do not need to ascend to the heights of some human spirituality. We look to the child in the manger. We look to the baby in the manger. In him is all of God's eternal wisdom and glory. Jesus is the everlasting 
king. And so Jesus is not a new king. He always has been king ever since ever. He's eternal. Eternity past, eternity future. He is not coming into the world as a new king, but the birth of Jesus indicates that the world's experience of the eternal king is taking a new form. The, The Christmas story is not about the arrival of a new king. It's about the arrival of an eternal king in, in, in a way that, that creation can see him and understand him differently. And so God and humanity once lived together in the Garden of Eden. And after sin entered the world, God continued to meet with his people, albeit in a veiled way, in the tabernacle and in the temple. And so people had to go through uh, purity rituals and sacrifices in order to enter his presence. But here, Jesus is God with us. It's God and man in the flesh. And so the Christmas story is full of new hope because God, the eternal God, has come to dwell with his people and to bring them into an everlasting kingdom of peace, which brings us to our fourth point that this this wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father is the prince of peace. This word peace here is is incredibly important. It's It's the word shalom. And in the original language, this word shalom is, uh, has, has, has significantly more weight to it than the word peace does in our language. The typical understanding of peace in our context is absence of turmoil, absence of pain, absence of confusion, absence of chaos. So if a country is not at war, then it is at peace. If there's no commotion in our house, then our house is peaceful. But in the Jewish mindset, shalom was not only the absence of undesirable things, It also included the presence and abundance of all good things. And so it's not only lacking in chaos, but it is not lacking in anything good. This is shalom. This is what God's people experienced in Eden before Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden. In the garden, there was peace. There was shalom. There was no evil. There was no sin. There was no chaos or corruption or death, but there was also beauty and fullness of joy and abundance of good things. And there was, there was fullness of joy in humanity's relationship with God, in humanity's relationship with one another, and in humanity's relationship with creation. This is shalom, not just, God, get rid of the bad things, but all of the good things given to us in abundance. And so as the prince of shalom, shalom, peace belongs to Jesus. It belongs to him. He rules over it. His kingdom is a kingdom of shalom, abundance of good things. And so he rules over it belongs to him. Because in him, there is no fault. There is no failure. In him, there is nothing unpleasant. The kind of peace that Jesus brings is not possible apart from him in this world. There will be no shalom in this world until Jesus comes. And this is why I believe that people want to colonize other planets. No joke. They look around, they see the world, they go, this is all going to trash. 
Let's go make a home for ourselves among the stars. They're looking for a new home because there's no true peace, no shalom in any country under any form of government. There is no true peace to be found in the human kingdoms of this world. And so people are looking for a new home. That's the source of of all of this. And you know what? I don't doubt that someday they'll accomplish it. I, I've, got, I've got full faith in humanity that unless Jesus, like Babel, comes down and messes things up or saves us from ourselves, humanity will eventually colonize another planet. I believe that we're capable of it. Maybe you disagree. That's fine. But I also believe that if they colonize another planet, they will destroy that one just like we've destroyed this one. It won't work. The thing that that so many people are unwilling to recognize is that the problem is not with everyone else out there. The problem exists within us right here. I carry around the sickness of sin with me. We all carry around the, the, the distortion of sin with us, whether on earth or on Mars. Even if, let's just say, for this benefit of the doubt, let's just say that right now there is perfect shalom in Mars, right? There's, there's, there's nothing bad present and there's just an abundance of good things. It is ruined the moment I step foot on Mars. This is, this is what C.S. Lewis writes about in, uh, in the second installation of his space trilogy, Paralandria. Has anybody read Paralandria? Paralandria is a beautiful story of, of this man watching creation unfold. And the moment a human arrives, <laughs> this is bad news. It's gone the instant a human foot steps down. But true peace... True shalom belongs to Jesus. And so not only does his presence eliminate corruption, but it adds all good things in abundance. All good things. Scripture says in his right hand are pleasures forevermore. An abundance of good things and joy and and, and beauty and truth. This is the Prince of Peace. It belongs to him. And so because it belongs to him, Jesus gives peace to his people. You can have peace today. Maybe this last week, this last month, these last two years, yeah, they've been ridiculous. They've been hard. There's been pain. It's been bad. But the reason we can have peace today is not because Jesus gives us perspective. It's because he gives us peace. It's because he gives us real peace, true peace. Because Jesus has dealt with the chaos and corruption in the world. The problem of of evil that's in the world, division and hate, it's not a political issue. It's a spiritual issue. It's a faith issue. And so sin brings separation between people and God, and sin brings separation between people and other people. But Jesus gives us peace by dealing once and for all with the sin that separates, because our sin against God was forgiven on the cross. And in being reconciled to God, in being united to Christ, if I am reconciled to God, if I am united to Christ, and you all are reconciled to God, you are united to Christ, then we are united united one to another. 
We are in Christ together, partakers of the divine nature. This is a beautiful, beautiful truth. This is why Paul can say in Colossians 1, 19 through 20, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus makes peace by removing the separation that sin causes between us and him and the separation that sin causes between you and I. Because our sin has been forgiven, the sin that we have committed against God, because God has forgiven us so we can forgive one another because our sins against one another are not nearly are not nearly as severe as, as they are against God. And if the blood of Christ can cover my sin against him, then it easily covers your sin against me. And we can forgive one another and we can be united to one another. We can be a family. We can be a family. We can, we can partake in the divine nature together. We can receive together. We can be known by his name together. We're known by the name of Jesus, not just at Reality Carpinteria. We're not known by the name of our church. We're known by the name of Jesus. And so the unity that we have is not just in this room. The unity that we have in Christ is unity with Faith Lutheran, is unity with Christ Church Carpinteria. It's unity with Carpinteria Valley Baptist Church, with Family Baptist Church. It's unity with St. Joe's. It's unity with Carpenter's Chapel. It's unity with all of those who have been united to Christ Peace has been made by the blood of his cross. We are not in competition. We are in Christ. Sin has been eliminated, but that's only half of peace. That's only the first half of peace. Corruption being put aside, dealt with. Jesus also introduces the abundance of the kingdom of God, the abundance of the kingdom of peace into our lives. Every good thing is ours in Christ. You can have peace not only because he's dealt with your sin, but because in him you have every good thing, every good thing, everything you could possibly desire, everything you could possibly imagine. Though in this life you might encounter difficulty, in this life you might encounter poverty, in this life you might encounter brokenness and sickness and death, in this life you can also encounter peace because you have God's abundance in you through Christ because every good thing belongs to Jesus and you belong to Jesus. We've been united not only to him, we've been united not only one to another, but we have been united to every good thing that belongs to him. The reason that we have life in Christ is because life belongs to Christ and we've been united to Christ. The reason that we have righteousness is because righteousness belongs to Christ and we've been united to Christ. The reason that we are, are counted, we are declared holy the, the, the reason that we are heir, co-heirs of all things is because all things belong to Jesus and you have been united to Jesus. It's like a marriage. When two people get married, what belonged to one another before the wedding now belongs to each of them. This is why when I got married, my wife became the co-owner of my student debt. Praise God. Hallelujah. I got to share it with somebody. And why also 
a couple of years ago because of a business that my wife created. God paid off our debt. I got to marry up. Gentlemen, marry up. It belongs to Jesus. Every good thing belongs to Jesus. And so when we're united to him, he shares generously with the church, his bride. We belong to him. And so by trusting in him, we belong to the wonderful counselor who gives wisdom and counsel and direction into our lives because we belong to him. We belong to the mighty God who is able not only to make us on purpose, but to bring about his fulfilled purposes in us. You belong to an everlasting king, an everlasting father who provides for you and protects you. You belong to the prince of peace, the one who rules over a kingdom of peace and generously invites you in. Christmas is not just a good story. Through faith, it's our story. The Christmas story is our story. He invites us in. We began by talking about the cultural misunderstandings of Christmas and ultimately its misunderstanding of Jesus. And here's my fear. I'm afraid that if we're not careful, and if we only remember these things one month out of the year, then we risk forgetting them every other day of the year. And, and, and we forget to live in light of these things every other day of the year. There's a reason that during Christmas, people suddenly become more generous. There's a reason during Christmas, people suddenly become more, more kind. And, and, and it's, a, it's a real thing. People are remembering this story. Whether they believe it or not, they, they know deep down in their hearts, it's more blessed to give than to receive. But if we're not careful and if we're not reminded of these things, Jesus isn't just wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace during one month out of the year. This is who he is constantly. This is who you belong to constantly if you have put your faith in Jesus. And so we need to be careful that this, these misunderstandings that the culture has, they're, they're not so much, uh, um, it, it's not so much that it can infiltrate the church because it's not, it's not new things coming into the church. It's the church forgetting who we are as, as, as the world has forgot who we are. It's forgotten that we're made in the image of God. It's forgotten that we were made to, to, to have a relationship with him and to represent him, to reflect him in, in the world. And so my fear is, if we're not constantly remembering these things, not just one month out of the year, that we too, as a church, will, will risk forgetting these things, and not living in, in light of these things. But if we're careful to remember Jesus, if we're careful to remember these things, if we're careful to listen to Jesus' voice, not just as another voice vying for our attention, but if we're careful to look at Jesus and truly cling to him as our greatest treasure, and if, we, if we're careful uh, to not just treat him as a, as a sentimental thought on Christmas, but truly as the, get, the, the greatest gift that we could ever receive, at any, at any moment of any day of the year, Jesus is our greatest treasure. He's the greatest gift that we can ever receive. And if we celebrate this, this Christmas, these truths year round, then this reality of the, the baby in the manger, 
This child in the manger who doesn't remain a child but becomes the greatest man the world has ever known, the man that is mighty God. If we remember that he is the one who is ushering in a peace that's not only available during Advent but every day out of the year, then we will remember that he has invited us into peace. He doesn't just give us peace. He invites us into peace and we can have peace. Look, we're coming to the end of the year which is the time we start reflecting back on the year and planning for the years ahead. And no matter what comes, church, you have peace and will have peace if you have Jesus, because Jesus has you. Father, we are so grateful that not only a child was born, but a son was given. Your son was given that we could have peace. And so, Lord, we're here together today just to worship, Lord, just to say thank you, just to declare the truths of, of who you are. And Lord, I pray that our hearts would, would resonate as we sing that, that these wouldn't just be words, but that they would, they would be pouring out of our hearts as those who have received peace, those who have received the King, those who have been saved by the God of the universe who loves us and made us and desires relationship with us. God, we are here to worship you. And so we pray that you would be glorified in all that we say and do and sing. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.